Good evening, everyone. You're welcome to keep kneeling and do a penance in addition to the penance of my talk, or you can sit. I got to say, it's like the best seat in the house when I was kneeling down here in front before. I just, you guys have had this silent adoration time, but I've been in the confessional for an hour and a half, and I just wanted to just like stay there and keep kneeling and praying before the Lord, you know? That's like the best seat in the house right there. But I got a talk to give, so you get the talk. We continue our series on the passions. We continue to meditate and review how to discern spirits and understand how the passions move within us and can be the sources of interior promptings that urge us to good or evil and how to deal with them. Specifically, we're talking about the three enemies of our human nature, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world are those external influences on our interior life. The flesh are those passions within us that we're talking about, but then we realize also that the devil, the evil spirits, tag team with the passions, and for every passion, there's a corresponding demon. So by way of, way of summary and, and a review, we're talking about the passions in general, then I'll get specific about tonight's passion. We all always struggle with all the passions. They affect us, our interior dispositions, the choices we make. That's why we need to better learn what they are and how to deal with them, so as to better serve and love God and our neighbor, which of course is the goal of our lives. Remember, it's important to understand that the passions in and of themselves are morally neutral. Their desires, movements, the Greek fathers of the desert call them the thoughts or the, or the uh, suggestions. Their goodness or their evil depends on how we consent to them, how we respond to them. They need to be governed by our reason and by our will. They only become sinful when we freely choose to live them in an unloving, uncharitable way. Remember always that sin is in the will. We choose freely by our consent to sin. Our passions are only sinful or become perverted or disordered when we choose to consent to them in a sinful way, and that is when we change their finality and their fundamental purpose. That is, every passion of ours is a natural and normal desire that God has placed within us. But when that desire becomes the end in and of itself, rather than a means to a desire, a means to, a, to a, an end, then we pervert their purpose and then they become sinful. Allowing our passions to rule us means abdicating our self-control of our passions. It weakens our will. And so we either govern our passions with our will or they dominate us. We are free to choose. And it's also important to remember that the passions are all interrelated. One leads to the other in turn. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Of course, Christ does his part. He is the divine physician who offers us in his compassion forgiveness, healing, peace, joy, consolation, strength, and ultimately detachment from the passions. He comes to save and heal and raise up the whole person. But we have to do our part to cooperate with him, and we do so at the supernatural spiritual level and at the natural material level. Spiritual tools like sacraments and prayer and the word of God, fighting off evil thoughts and uh, rebuking demons, and the physical tools of fasting and other disciplines of the flesh. We have to be intentional about engaging in the spiritual warfare with those spiritual and material tools. We can't overcome our passions without engaging in the battle. 
But we do so with confidence because we realize healing is possible. Our passions will always be there. They're a natural part of us, but we can truly govern them and become detached from them and not obsessed by them and not really suffer them, not experience them as a cause of suffering. And so really live charity. That is true love of God and self and others. Now, we began speaking about the three bodily passions, gluttony, which leads to lust, which leads to greed, and how they lead, as we spoke last week, to anger. Because people seek satisfaction, peace, and joy in these corporeal, in these material senses, in these, in these feelings, and these passions, but of course they do not satisfy. So that frustration, that lack of satisfaction, leads to anger, which in turn leads to the passion we discussed tonight, which is the passion of sadness. The emptiness that is left by the pursuit of pleasure and the consequent frustrated anger generates sadness because those pleasures ultimately are disappointing. They don't deliver what they promise. They're not what we thought they were. We made them out to be. Nothing in the world truly satisfies. And so we engage in these passions, engage in the passions. They don't satisfy. So we're frustrated, we're angry, and, and we realize in the end then nothing satisfies, and we're left with our sadness. Consider the testimony of scripture and tradition. Now we've seen in all these passions how they each follow in turn logically one from the other, and we see this already at the very beginning in the book of Genesis, right? Adam and Eve are tempted by gluttony. The fruit is pleasing to the eye. And that leads to lust. They become ashamed and cover themselves up because they have a sense of their nakedness. And then there's greed. Cain is jealous of what Abel has, right? And that leads to anger. Cain kills Abel. Then what happens? The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not. Cain was crestfallen. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you so crestfallen? If you do well, you can hold up your head. But if not, sin is a demon lurking at the door. His urge is toward you, yet you can be his master. That's the dynamic of the passions. They urge within us, right? And yet we can master them. Because of the fall, because of our alienation from God and self and others and the world, there's an underlying sadness to the human condition, right? We suffer and we ultimately die and alone. We sense an alienation from others, and there's a, there's, a, there's a fundamental solitude that we have. We are born alone, and we die alone. And ultimately, nothing and no one on this earth ultimately satisfies us. We hear this when we say that prayer, the Hail Holy Queen, where we speak of mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. As Evagrius Ponticus, that great Greek father of the desert from whom we take this teaching, said, Sadness tends to come up at times because of the deprivation of one's desires. The man who flees from all worldly pleasures is an impregnable tower before the assaults of the demon of sadness. So if we continue to cherish some affection for anything in this world, It is impossible to repel this enemy, for he lays his snares and produces sadness precisely where he sees we are particularly inclined. The more we're attached to creatures, the less we're attached to the Creator. The more we seek satisfaction in worldly things, the sadder we become because they do not satisfy. 
We see the example from the gospel recently. Again, Matthew is the gospel according to Matthew. Someone approached Jesus and said, Teacher, what good must I do to gain eternal life? He answered him, If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. The young man said to him, All of these I have observed. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be perfect, go, sell what you have, and give to the poor, and you will find treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this statement, he went away sad, for he had many possessions. St. Augustine says this in, I think, one of the most moving parts of his confessions, his spiritual autobiography. Listen carefully to what St. Augustine says and the dynamic that he explains. When once I shall be united to thee with all my being, there shall be no more grief and toil, and my life will be alive, filled wholly with thee. Thou dost raise up him whom thou dost fill, Whereas being not yet filled with thee, I am a burden to myself. The pleasures of this life for which I should weep are in conflict with the sorrows of this life in which I should rejoice, and I know not on which side stands the victory. Woe is me, Lord, have pity on me, for I have likewise sorrows which are evil, and these are in conflict with the joys that are good, and I know not on which side stand the victory. Woe is me, Lord, have mercy on me. Woe is me. See, I do not hide my wounds. Thou art the doctor, I the sick man. Thou art merciful, I need mercy. Is not the life of man on earth a trial? Who would choose trouble and difficulty? Thou dost command us to endure them, not to love them. No one loves what he endures, though he may love to endure. For though he may rejoice to endure, yet he would rather that there were nothing to endure. In adversity I desire prosperity, in prosperity I fear adversity. Yet what middle place is there between the two where man's life may be other than trial? There is woe and woe again in the prosperity of this world. Woe from the fear of adversity, woe from the corruption of joy. There is woe in the adversity of this world, and a second woe and a third from the longing for prosperity, and because adversity itself is hard, and for fear that endurance may break. Is not man's life on earth trial without intermission? All my hope is naught, save in thy great mercy. Again, St. Augustine says, Thou dost command us to endure them, not to love them. No one loves what he endures, though he may love to endure. Right? God commands us to endure trials. He doesn't tell us that we have to love the trials. But we can actually love the fight against the trials and find joy in the fight. Because our society is consumed by and given over to the passions of gluttony, lust, and greed, and anger, and so disappointed and unsatisfied, our society is plunged into sadness. Consider these facts. 13% of our adult population is on antidepressants. In the last 20 years, the use of antidepressants has increased 400%. And anger and sadness go hand in hand. People are not happy. People are not joyful. And I've got to tell you, even people that appear to be happy and have everything going for them can have deep sadness They often just wear masks. And I'm not going to name any names, but I can think of 
dozens of famous people that have everything going for them, fame and wealth, and, and, uh, but they get into scandals and misery because they're just not happy when they appear to have everything that they could possibly want and have dreamt of. I'll never forget, it was 28 years ago, I was a newly ordained priest here at St. Charles. A young man came in uh, without an appointment, needed to talk to a priest. There I was, and he was really nicely dressed. I could tell he had an expensive suit on. He was obviously a very successful man. And he started telling me what he did in life, and he just broke down and wept in front of me uncontrollably. And he was full of sadness because his life was meaningless, because it wasn't given to God. By every external appearance, he had everything going for him. He had money, he had a good position, he was decent looking, but he was miserable, and you never would have guessed by looking at him. Now, what's the true purpose of this passion of sadness? What is sadness in God's plan? And as much as it's a natural passion within us, it's a way that God created us. How is this passion lived in charity, in a healthy way? How is sadness properly expressed? Is there a good sadness that's a means to an end? Remember, the passions are morally neutral. How is this passion of sadness morally neutral? Well, we can say sadness in its natural, and its good state, is a fourfold good. First of all, the sadness of compunction. Compunction is sorrow for one's sins. That's a good sadness, the sadness that leads to conversion. We see this in the prodigal son, right? After a life given over to the passions where he squanders everything that he's been given, he's reduced to care for the swine. That's as low as you can get in the Hebrew tradition, right? Pigs are impure animals. He's longing to eat the food of the pigs. That's about as bad as it gets, right? But what what does the scripture say? He came to himself and said, I will arise and go to my father, right? He's saddened by his situation. He's dejected. But that sadness is a cause for conversion. He's saddened by the sins and by the rejection of his father and where that's brought him. And so that turns him in compunction to change his life, get up, and go back to the house of the father. St. Paul says this very clearly in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. If I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. I rejoice. This is, he's referring to 1 Corinthians where he really was giving them a hard time, right? Because they were a really wayward community. I rejoice because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret, but worldly grief produces death. For see what eagerness this godly grief has produced in you, what eagerness to clear yourselves. So the good sadness is the sadness by which we repent for our sins and turn back to the Lord. Bad sadness is just wallowing in sadness for sadness' sake, where the sadness becomes the end of itself rather than the means to an end, which is repentance. There's another sadness that we have, which is a good sadness, and that's the sadness we have. It goes along with the anger we talked about last week about righteous anger against injustice. Injustice also makes us sad, right? And we're also sad when people that we love are not converted and are not close to the Lord, right? In the Gospel of Luke, we hear, And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that even today you knew the things that make for peace. Jesus is saddened because his holy city of Jerusalem is not converted. That's a good sadness. When we have compassion for people and are sad because they are not converted to the Lord, or we're saddened by injustice in the world, we're saddened by the legal killing of unborn babies, right? Another third sorrow, which is a good sorrow, a good sadness, is the sadness when we meditate the Lord's passion, right? 
When we look at the Lord's passion, we are experiencing, we are seeing the greatest injustice in the history of the world. And we see this in the holy women and people that followed him during his passion, during the way of the cross. As the Gospel of Mark said, there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who bewailed and lamented him. They were saddened by this terrible injustice. That's a good sadness when we meditate the passion of the Lord and realize what he suffered for our salvation. And there's a fourth sadness, which is sadness at being separated from the Lord. This can also go hand in hand with that first sadness of conversion. God forbid we commit a grave sin and we're separated from the Lord's grace and we're sad because of that. Because we have a judgment of conscience that tells us that we are separated from him and his saving grace. That's a good sadness. But sadness at being separated from the Lord in any way. right? As the Lord says to his apostles before the, his passion, A little while and you will not see me. Amen, amen, I say to you, you will weep and lament. And the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When we're separated from the Lord in any way, we're sorrowful, right? And in some ways, in some ways we're separated from him, in a sense, in this life, because we long for the perfect union with him in the next life. But of course, we can be perfectly intimately united with him also by grace in this world. But as the Lord suffered and died and went down to the tomb and down to the grave, his disciples were saddened because they were separated from him. But then their sorrow turned to joy when they saw him again. This can also be the case with us. That is the ultimate purpose of sadness. Sadness in God's plan. Sadness when it's lived in a healthy way, right? However, because of our fallen human condition, we experience sadness as an unruly passion within us, which drags us down. And sadness then, we, t- we are tempted to focus on it inordinately as an end, as a thing in and of itself. And that's when it becomes unhealthy. That's when it becomes sinful. That's when it becomes an inordinate expression of a passion uncontrolled by our reason and our will. And it's lived uncharitably and unhealthily. This is the, uh, this is the pathology of the passion of sadness. When we're not sad for the right reasons because of our sins, but we're sad for the wrong reasons, because we lose sensible goods, we lose certain pleasures, unsatisfied desires. And the consequences of this pathology, this illness of giving in to the passion of sadness and the demon of sadness, is of course, along with anger, our soul becomes darkened. We lose discernment and reason. We don't think things through clearly as when we're angry. And, of course, we have a loss of interior peace. And it leads to uh, anguish. We can see the symptoms of anguish and bitterness, anxiety when we're sad. And this leads ultimately to the next passion, which is that of Acadia, which is traditionally called sloth, but really means spiritual sloth, or we can say depression and despair. It leads to ultimately giving up on the spiritual life. Should that be the case with us? Are Christians as sad as non-believers? Shouldn't we be filled with joy because we're not slaves to our passions? Not disappointed by the inordinate focus of the world has on pleasures? Don't we focus on what's really essential and beautiful and good, our Lord himself, on the creator, not on the creatures? 
Do we respond to necessary challenges and, and difficulties and the sufferings of life like non-believers do, giving into sadness because we have to fight, because life isn't easy, because life is hard at times, because there are things that, are, that tend to sadden us? Or along with St. Augustine, do we fight the good fight? We don't have to like the fight, but we, can, we don't have to like the things that make us sad, but we can like the fight against sadness, right? What is the treatment of this unhealthy passion? What is the treatment of this, of this pathology, of this spiritual illness? How do we live this passion in a charitable way, in a healthy way? How, does it, how, do we bring, how do we get healing of this sadness and this passion? Well, as with the other passions, we cultivate the contrary virtue, which of course is the virtue of joy. As Pope Benedict XVI said, one of the fundamental rules for the discernment of spirits could therefore be the following. Where joy is lacking, where humor dies, there the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, is not present either. And vice versa, joy is a sign of grace. The one who's profoundly serene, who has suffered without losing joy, that one is not far from the God of the gospel, from the Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of eternal joy. So how do we get this joy? How are we healed of this passion of sadness? Well, we give our lives over to the spirit of joy. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, living according to the Spirit. And that begins with prayer. Again, we work on that spiritual level and then on the natural level. On the supernatural level, prayer, especially the Word of God, meditating words of joy. Psalm 22, Psalm 42, John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Have trust in God and trust also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. Otherwise I would not have told you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Pray those words. Remember again, how does Jesus fight the demon when he is tempted in the desert? He uses the word of God. I say it again. It's something our Protestant brothers and sisters know. They can call on a word and that word is powerful against any passion and against any demon. Be steeped in that word so that when you're tempted to sadness, you can call upon a word of joy and of confidence in the Lord. Pray for the grace of hope and pray for the grace of confidence, right? Confident trust that God is faithful to his promises, that he's with us and gives us what we need and that we're not alone in our sadness. Again, pray that word. What's the source of joy? Jesus says himself. Um... As the Father loves me, so I also love you. Remain in my love. If my word remains in you, and you remain in my love, then you will have my joy, and my joy, your joy will be complete. What is the source of complete joy? Meditating the love Jesus has for us that is the same love the Father has for him. Look to the word to grow in joy. And in your prayer, make the evil spirit submit in the name of Jesus, right? Speak to the spirit. Spirit of sadness, I rebuke you in the holy name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I rebuke the demon of sadness. In the name of Jesus, I command you, demon of sadness, depart. You have no power over me. The grace of God is superior. That on the supernatural level. On the natural level, we need to work. We need to govern and dominate our other passions. Again, they all follow in turn. If you can begin with that control over the passion of gluttony, then it's not going to lead to lust and to greed, to anger and to sadness. If you can govern those corporeal passions, those bodily passions, then you're going to find it easy to be freed from anger and from sadness because you're not a slave to those passions that do not satisfy and make you sad.
desire to escape from sadness, not to wallow in it and in self-pity, right? This is the temptation oftentimes when one feels burdened by sadness to wallow in the sadness and listen to sad music and woe is me. And I'm so sad that I think if I feel sad, I'll feel even sadder. And it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy of self-pity that makes me avoid sad movies, avoid sad music when you're sad, right? Fight against that passion, against that demon. Avoid being withdrawn and staying to yourself and selfishly alone. Reach out to be in the company of joyful Christians. St. Thomas Aquinas talks about this. You know, he talks about the five. I've, I'm focusing mostly on the Desert Fathers, but St. Thomas Aquinas talks about five remedies to sadness. And one of those is, again, avoid being withdrawn. One of those is share your sorrow with a friend, especially a friend who's full of Christian joy and who wants to be there with you and for you, right? What are his five remedies to sadness? Pleasure. Now, don't get me wrong here, right? I'm saying pleasure is the cause of sadness, right? If you... If you indulge inordinately in the passions and think you're going to find satisfaction in the passions, that's going to result in sadness. But if you're sad, St. Augustine says, have a little, do something you enjoy to get you out of that sadness. You know, go to a good movie with a friend. Take it, you know, if you enjoy riding your bike, ride your bike. If you like chocolate, have a piece of chocolate, right? It's funny, my spiritual director in Rome, who's now an auxiliary bishop of Rome and one of the exorcists of the diocese of Rome, I'll never forget, I'd go to confession to him at the, uh, at the church um, of the Jesu in the Rome, and right across the street was a really nice chocolate shop. And oftentimes after my confession, he'd say, now go to the chocolate shop and buy yourself a piece of chocolate. That's a good spiritual director. So seriously, seriously. He didn't tell me to overindulge in the passion of chocolate, right? But yeah. one of the remedies for sadness is pleasure. Also the remedy, weeping. Cry it out. Get it out. Don't wallow in it. Get it out. And after a good cry, you feel better, right? Share your sorrow with a friend. Contemplate the truth, which is what we're doing here. The truth about Jesus. The truth about our salvation. The truth that the power of God is greater than any sadness or any passion or demon. And St. Thomas says a remedy to sadness is take a nice warm bath and take a nap think I'm kidding? He's a doctor of the church. <laughs> this is what he says, right? So these are kind of like the practical antidotes to sadness, right? And understand the difference between hope and expectation, right? Christians should hope for the world, hope for the moon, but not expect anything. And there are no guarantees in this life, just death and taxes, right? Seriously, that's all they can guarantee, right? Taxes are for sure, and I can guarantee you, humanity has a 100% mortality rate. I can assure you of one of two things. Either you will die, or the Lord Jesus will come again in glory in your lifetime. Of one of those two possibilities, I'm absolutely and totally certain, right? But understand the difference between hope and expectation. We shouldn't expect anything in this life, but we can hope for everything. Hope for, hope for all the world, all the Lord promises us, right? Especially, don't expect anything in terms of sensible goods. And in that sense, we have to... We have to make the distinction between, as I said when we talked about greed, between wants and needs. When it comes to sadness, we have to, we have to make the distinction between what is and what is not. Oftentimes what makes us sad when we're thinking about all the things that we don't have, and I don't have this, and I don't have that, and I don't have a boyfriend, I don't have a girlfriend, I don't, I don't have the job. Don't focus on what is not. Focus on what is. Count your blessings. Count your blessings. And see there that you can not expect anything in particular, but you can hope and trust that God will take care of you and give you what you need. 
All right, and manifest your heart again to a spiritual friend or and especially to a spiritual director, a spiritual father. My friends, not working in these ways at the spiritual level, the practical level, leads again to the extreme of sadness, which is depression and despair, which we will talk about next time. But in the meantime, we have nothing to fear. As Jesus said to the apostles, he says to us, I have said this to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Amen.